We are fellow soldiers and teammates who must stand firm for biblical truth, one, and two, work together for the growth of the gospel. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Thank you, DJ. Fellow students, if you would open to the book of Philippians, Philippians 1, we're going to pick up the narrative in verse 27. We've been in Philippians for a couple of weeks now. Remember that Paul wrote the book of the Philippians from prison. It was near the end of his two-year imprisonment in Rome. He's been in prison almost four years at this point, two years in Caesarea and two years in Rome. It's about 61, 62 AD, so Jesus was crucified about 32, 33. It's been about 30 years since the resurrection. This letter is really a thank you letter. The Philippian church has been very, very supportive of Paul, not just financially, but also in prayer-wise, they've been very good friends of his, and so this is a thank you letter for them. And he wants to let them know that his imprisonment has really turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. You know, if you find somebody in prison for four years, you think they're depressed, Paul is actually exultant that the gospel is going out as a result of his imprisonment. Satan's plans have been backfiring for sure. He doesn't know whether he's going to be exonerated and set free or executed and martyred for his faith. In either case, he's committed to honoring Jesus, whether by life or by death. He says, I'm, I'm between a rock and a hard place. I don't know whether Jesus is going to be more honored by me going to heaven or me staying here and working for you. From a personal standpoint, I'd rather get out of here and just go home. But I think it's better for you if I live, but whatever is going to happen, God knows that, so I'm going to continue the plan for gospel and honor Christ one way or the other. So now, in verse 27, he shifts gears, and he wants to talk to them about honoring God, not just with their talk, talk, but with their walk, walk. Pick up the narrative, verse 27. He says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. You can underline that. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Here's the principle. When people see us behave like Jesus, some of them may choose to believe in Jesus. When people see us behave like Jesus, some of them may choose to believe in Jesus. So Paul is like a parent. You who have been parents... You go out for the evening, and what do you tell your teenage children? Behave yourselves. And you know what that means, children. You've been with us for 15, 16, 17 years. Here's how I want you to behave. So Paul is telling the Philippian church how to behave, and he uses this phrase, only conduct yourselves. And he uses the word only to emphasize the priority. He's basically saying how you behave is of first and vital importance for the cause of the gospel. Living worthy of the gospel, in other words, is the most important thing a Christian should do. And this word conduct yourselves literally means live as a citizen. Live as a citizen of a free polis. Polis is P-O-L-I-S, is where we get the word political, and it means city, right? Philippi, by the way, the Philippians would know exactly what he meant. Philippi is 800 miles from Rome to the east, and it's a Roman colony. It's a Roman outpost. Philippi is a city that took vast pride in being a Roman outpost, a Roman colony. They followed Roman customs, Roman traditions, Roman laws. It literally called Philippi a little Rome. And the citizens were, took great pride in being a citizen of Rome. They were actually protected by Roman law. They had a great deal of freedom. Being a Roman citizen in this era was the epitaph, the epitome of dignity and pride and honor and respect. So citizens of Rome in Philippi 
were expected to live their lives so as to be a credit to Rome. In other words, you live for the community, not just for your selfish little self. So just as Philippi was a colony of Rome and Macedonia, Paul is making the point, the church is a colony or an outpost of heaven on earth. Get that? Philippi is a colony of Rome. Their citizenship is Rome, but they're supposed to behave like Romans. Paul is saying to the church, you are citizens of heaven. This is an outpost of heaven on earth. Live like you're a citizen of heaven. This is a foreign country. Don't live like this country. You live according to the values, the laws, and the customs, and the culture of heaven because that's who you are. He writes in 2 Corinthians 5.20, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador, of course, as you know, is a citizen of one country who's on assignment to a foreign country. They represent the government of their homeland, and their primary loyalty is to where? Their homeland. Their primary loyalty is not to the country they're living. An ambassador is working for the benefit of their homeland. In the same way, Christians are ambassadors for Christ, right? We live on earth, but we're foreigners here. One of the problems the church has always had is trying to assimilate into the culture of which they are not a part of endemically. We're citizens of heaven. We're never citizens of earth. Our primary loyalty is to Jesus Christ and to the heavenly kingdom. We are on assignment here. We're on mission. We're not on vacation. He says, live worthy of the gospel. What he's basically saying is, live a life of spiritual integrity. In essence, to put it in the vernacular, here's what he's saying. Walk your talk or stop talking. I would just say shut up, but anyway. (laughs) Walk your talk or stop talking, because if you talk your talk and you don't walk it, you give the people that walk it a bad name. Live a life that is consistent with biblical truth. If we claim to believe in Jesus, then we ought to behave like Jesus. Frederick Nietzsche once said to Christians, this is powerful. He says, Show me your redeemed life, and I will be inclined to believe in your Redeemer. Show me your redeemed life, and I will be inclined to believe in your behavior. There's an old gospel song that says a little more colloquial. It says, your walk talks and your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. Got it? Your walk talks and your talk talks talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. If the so-called Christian, at least in name only, values what the world values, watches what the world watches, behaves like the world behaves, then the world looks at us and rightly says, your God doesn't seem to make a great difference in your life, so why would I want him in my life? You act like me, right? I've got a four-word theology. I'm pretty simple. No change, no Jesus. No change, no Jesus. If there's no change in your beliefs or behaviors, then there's no Jesus in your life. Because when Jesus comes into your life, he makes you a new person. He gives you godly desires and the supernatural power to fulfill them. See, Christians with a redeemed heart who know Jesus, who love him, guess what? Pastor Roger once said, he said, you know, I drink all the alcohol I want to drink. He doesn't want to drink alcohol because he has a new set of desires, because he has a new master, because he loves Jesus more than anything else, and that's all of us. Christians want to love and serve Jesus more than they want to sin. I didn't say you didn't want to sin. I said you love and want to serve Jesus more than you want to sin. That's why there's this battle within us. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Jesus said earlier in Matthew 5.15, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and what? Glorify your Father who's in heaven. So after Christ comes into our life and we're saved and redeemed, we are a new creature. We have the Holy Spirit in our life. 
And there should be visible evidence that, in fact, you are a new creature. Our lives should be filled with good works that reveal the reality that a good God lives in us. Because how we live should cause a watching world to honor God. Because we do good in his name. In other words, his life, good God, flows out through us as we do good works in his name. I don't know if you know this, but people watch everything you do. It would be extremely advisable to live your life as if there are no secrets. Because there aren't. I can't believe the number of people come up and said, Brad, blah, 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 six months ago. And you start looking over your shoulder and say, what did I do six months ago? I hope it was good, right? Live your life in such a way that it gives a testimony. That's what Paul's talking about. What people are watching is they're watching to see if our words and our deeds agree. They're looking for consistency. There is no greater testimony to the reality of Jesus Christ than the power of a godly life. There's no more disastrous testimony than someone who claims to belong to Jesus but who lives like the world. And the standard for our behavior, Paul says, live like citizens of heaven. Well, what's the standard for that behavior? It's not what the world says appropriate. It's what God says is appropriate in the Bible. So when we actually do what God says in the Bible, the world will sit up and take notice. Now, they may oppose you when you live according to Scripture, but they will notice because it will be highly unusual, right? So if we're supposed to live worthy of the gospel, precisely what does that behavior look like? Verse 27b says two things. Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Here's the principle. We are fellow soldiers and teammates who must stand firm for biblical truth, one, and two, work together for the growth of the gospel. Standing firm in one spirit literally means to hold your ground. Don't retreat at any cost. The word picture here is of a soldier who's been assigned a post and they stay at that post and fight at that post as commanded, even when under attack. And, and, the, and the image of this is the Praetorian Guard. The Praetorian Guard, of course, is the elite bodyguard for Caesar. There's about 9,000 soldiers. And they had, took a vow to never retreat. They might be defeated, they might be killed, but they never retreated. And that's Paul's word picture for us. He says the church needs to stand firm. Well, what does that mean? Stand firm for biblical truth. Stand firm on the word of God and never compromise with doctrinal error. And there are millions and millions and millions of Christians who are foggy on this subject because they don't know what Scripture says. So they don't know how to stand firm. They haven't been taught or they haven't taught themselves. It means to stand firm for what God says, for truth, for justice, for holiness, for purity, for loyalty, for obedience. It says the word of God is what is the authority in my life, not the standards of the culture which are circling the drain. We are to stand firm when under spiritual attack from Satan or the world, and you know how to do that. Read Ephesians 6, cross-reference that. You put on the full armor of God because we're in a battleground, and you know that, and I know that. So that's the stand firm, the soldier metaphor. Here's the athletic metaphor. He says, strive together. And the word picture here is to struggle, to struggle along with someone. It's, it's an athletic term and advice, teamwork, where you contend and strive and advance forward. It means having a common goal and a common enemy. You ever notice that every athletic team always has a common goal? They want to win the game. They also have a common enemy, the other team. If you don't have a common goal and a common enemy, you don't have teamwork. I didn't put this on screen, but I think it's good. Nothing will bond you together more than shared suffering in the pursuit of victory over a common enemy. I'm going to say that again. Nothing will bond you together more than shared suffering in the pursuit of victory over a common enemy. Teamwork or unity, which we're going to get into, is what wins victories, whether in the battlefield, the sports arena, or in life. Unity is absolutely essential to any victory 
in any mission, including the gospel mission. On the night before his crucifixion, remember Jesus prayed, John 17. He prayed to his Father, one of the great, great, probably greatest prayer in Scripture, obviously. And he prayed for unity, John 17, 21. He says that they, he's talking about the disciples, his followers, may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they, almost, they may also be in us. Why? That the world may believe that you sent me. Unity is powerful testimony to the reality that Jesus is the Son of God and saves people from sins and transforms their life. So Paul's writing this to the Philippians because there's division in this church. We know there's two women who are not getting along, and the church was taking sides. Gosh, is this familiar, right? Why? What is Satan's number one strategy to take down a church, a family, or, or any entity he wants to destroy? Divide and conquer, right? Put a wedge between people. It's a sound strategy for military battles or spiritual battles. If you can create division inside your opponent's team, guess what? They destroy themselves. Abraham Lincoln once quoted Jesus who said in Mark 3.25, if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Abraham Lincoln quoted it relative to the Civil War. Jesus obviously was talking about spiritual things at this point. Satan has been dividing and conquering God's people ever since Adam and Eve. Think about this. God made Adam and Eve what? One flesh, right? He says, husband and wife, you're one flesh. I super glued you together. They ate the fruit, and what's the first thing that happened? God said to Adam, what happened? Now, it's not that God didn't know. Adam threw Eve under the bus like that. He said, that woman you gave to me, yada, 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 yada. Now, that's the original cop-out, and people have been doing it ever since. What a flake. Divide and conquer. What happened within a few years? Older brother Cain kills younger brother Abel, right? Out of jealousy. Satan is a master at splitting churches, families, friends, and nations. And, of course, you don't have to look very far to see fragmentation in our world today. The cost of division is isolation, depression, loneliness, no joy, and you see a lot of people are in that situation today. When we fight with each other, the problem is we take our eyes off Jesus. That's the big problem. We start looking at all this petty stuff, and we take our eyes off Jesus, and we also lose track of our job description, which means we take our eyes off the lost who need Jesus. So unity... Paul's talking about this, requires a commitment to a common mission. When soldiers are in combat and fighting for their lives, it's all for one and one for all. There's no division when the bullets start flying. It's all about we have to survive and you have to have my back and I have to have your back and that's all there is. What the church fails to realize is that we're in a battle for people's souls and it begins to be distracted by pettiness and personalities and the color of the carpet and the mission society. And we get distracted by all this stuff as opposed to remembering what the point is. You can't have unity without goals. If you want to see division, here's how you get it. Guaranteed. Business as usual. Business as usual means we've lost track of the mission which means we're now going to get distracted by pettiness and personalities, etc. So the mission that unifies the church is the faith of the gospel. That's what Paul says. I want you to stand firm on biblical truth. I want you to strive together for the faith of the gospel. Now, the faith of the gospel is what we're all about. It's the only reason you're still alive. If there was not the gospel to present, you'd be in glory at the moment of salvation. So God has a job description for us. The faith of the gospel is God's plan to reconcile people's broken relationship with him. And the gospel, the most succinct description of the gospel is in 1 Corinthians 15.3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The gospel is very simple, and it's our job description. Every single human being is separated from God due to their sin. 
Every single human being needs a Savior to pay the penalty for the sin so that they can have a relationship with the Holy God. This Savior, the promised Messiah in Scripture, is both eternal God and fully man. We're going to get into that next week a lot. The one and only God-man. As God, Jesus can atone for sin, and as man, he's an acceptable substitute who died in our place on a Roman cross. You say, well, how come they talked about him being buried? Well, for buried for three days is documented proof that you really are dead. No swooning, really died. And when you raise, are raised from the dead, it proves your triumph over sin and death, and that's what Jesus did. All we do is simply place our faith in Christ's payment for our sin. God declares us not guilty. He adopts us into his family. And now we can look forward to heaven. This death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is not vague. It is not subjective. It's very specific. It's very objective. It's very historical. And it's documentable and provable. That's our job description. How can sinful people be reconciled to holy God and go to heaven? Right? I mean, it's not tough to explain if we're on task and we understand that's our job description. Paul describes this gospel as a deposit, a precious, like a bank deposit. You're, you're depositing precious gold, silver, gems in a bank. It's a deposit that we're supposed to pass on. We're not supposed to lock up. This gospel is a, is a treasure from God. How to be saved, we're supposed to pass it on to the next generation. And we're supposed to pass it on with boldness. And you will have opposition, verse 28. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Here's the principle. When we oppose sin, people who love sin will oppose us. We will suffer, but God will save us. When we oppose sin, people who love sin will oppose us. We will suffer, but God will save us. This word alarmed, Paul says, don't be alarmed. It only shows up twice in Scripture. And it has, it's the picture of a startled horse that shies away in fear, and it, it stampedes because it's terrified. And he says, don't live that way. I want you to live courageously for Christ in the middle of opposition and persecution because God says, I will triumph. God's enemies will ultimately be destroyed. You will triumph over your enemies. And we need that reassurance because our culture is very hostile toward the gospel. And it's going to get more hostile toward the gospel. Our world system hates God's moral absolutes. Nobody likes to be told, what you're doing, God hates. And your sin is separating you from God. That really bothers human pride. And therefore, the world wants to shut down those who proclaim them. See, every Christian understands the first part of this sentence. It's been granted to you salvation. We understand salvation is a gift from God. The next phrase we swallow hard on. Because it says that suffering is also a gift from God. Whoa! Gift means grace. Which means suffering is unmerited favor from God. Now that takes a lot of water to swallow that big pill down, right? See, suffering is a gift because it's designed to strengthen us. It's designed to grow us to spiritual maturity. Your physical muscles grow when you stress them, preferably to the point of exhaustion, right? Suffering is like spiritual weight training. It's resistance training for your faith muscles, and it won't grow, and you and I won't grow without opposition. The gospel produces conflict and division. The gospel divides people. In Matthew 10, 34, Jesus said, I came to bring a sword. What does a sword do? A sword divides things, mostly flesh, right? Cuts things in two. 
when Jesus, what Jesus meant, he says, when you present the gospel, the acceptance or rejection of that gospel is going to divide people. And it's going to divide families. And you all know that. I have family members who want nothing to do with Jesus. They don't want to hear about it in the slightest. And you have family members the same way. And it breaks your heart. But the gospel does separate because you are headed for a different destination than they are headed for. We can't control people's responses to the gospel, but we must present it to them and then pray that God will open their heart. Ephesians 6.19, Paul is writing to the Ephesians and he's, he's, he's saying, pray for me. He says, pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as they ought to speak. So Paul, who's been walking with Jesus for years, says, pray for me that I would speak with boldness twice in two verses. How much more we need to pray for boldness. And we do, we can be bold because we have the Holy Spirit. You have Almighty God living in you. He gives you the power and the wisdom we need to triumph through suffering. Chapter 2, verse 1. If, therefore, there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Here's the principle. Because of all that Jesus has done for us, we are called to live in loving unity with each other. Because of all that Jesus has done for us, we are called to live in loving unity with each other. Now, he uses interesting phrases. He uses the word if, and he uses it four times. In the Greek, those are what's called first-class conditional clauses, and they don't refer to contingencies, they refer to certainties. So it means since, not if maybe, since it has already happened. Paul's writing here about completed realities, not possibilities. And he's really answering the question, why should you bother pursuing unity? I mean, why bother? What's the point? There are four reasons. Paul's saying, since you've received encouragement in Christ, since you've experienced this tender love, since you have the indwelling Holy Spirit, since Christ has been compassionate toward you, based on these four things that Jesus has done for you, we should live in unity with each other. Let me unpack this for you. Encouragement in Christ. The word encouragement translates paraclete. Paraclete in the Greek means the one who comes alongside to help, right? Who's the one who comes alongside to help? The Holy Spirit, right? To help and to counsel and exhort. Every single one of us in this room has been helped, encouraged, forgiven, and blessed by Christ. Amen? That's why we're here. So Paul says, therefore, try and live together with one mind. Try and be of one mind and one spirit. Followers of Jesus share the same values. You know why? We share the same Savior. If that doesn't bring you together, I don't know what will. He says, number two, you've experienced the consolation from his love. It literally means to come alongside someone and whisper encouragement and comfort in their ear. And there are people in your life that they need encouragement and comfort right now. Because Jesus, he has comforted us in all the affliction we have. And his tender love for us, Paul said, should motivate us to love him and love his family members and encourage and comfort them as well. Number three, he says, you've, you've experienced the fellowship of the Spirit. The, the word fellowship means koinonia. It means sharing together in a common enterprise. It's a partnership designed to achieve a common goal. The one thing every Christian has in common, the one thing every single Christian has inside them is the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does a lot of things. He convicts us of sin. He points us to Jesus. He gifts us for service. He teaches us. The Holy Spirit prays for us, seals us. He's the down payment for our heavenly inheritance. The Holy Spirit empowers us to resist temptation, helps us to endure suffering, so on and so forth. Paul says, look, based on everything the Holy Spirit's done for you, why would you not want to love the family of God? Based on all that Jesus has done for you. 
We have a common love, Jesus. We have a common mission to gospel. We have a common destination, heaven. Live like it now on earth. And lastly, Jesus has given us such affection and compassion. God is the author of love. He's the author of mercy, and he's loved each one of us. Therefore, he says, love others with that same tender compassion that he has shown you. What he's really talking about, these four actually senses, since Jesus has done all this, he's talking about an intimate relationship we have with Jesus Christ. He's talking about a very personal relationship. God is not a distant God. Jesus is very, very personal, and he's given us himself. And he says, therefore, we should give ourselves to one another based on what Jesus Christ has done for us. That's very, very reasonable, right? And he says, if you do this, you will make my joy complete. The principle here is unity is a producer of joy. It's a yielder of joy. It's like a parent. There are few things that will break a parent's heart than your children fighting with each other. Especially when they're old enough to know better. Right? Now, when they're young, you just whack them. But when they're 35, you just can't do that, right? That's when you pray. But there's almost no joy in the world like when your children get along and support each other and love each other and pray for each other and encourage each other. That's what we're talking about. God is a father. Do you know how much joy it brings him when his children get along? and love each other, and sacrifice for each other, and have each other's back. It brings him vast joy, just like when your children walk in truth and love each other. So God's given us four reasons why we should produce unity, why we should pursue it. The next question is, well, exactly what is it? I mean, this unity business. What is it, and how do we show it? And Paul says there are four marks of spiritual unity. Be of the same mind. Be of the same love, be of one spirit, and be of one purpose. Now, surprise, surprise, it appears that some of the people at Philippi, this is hard to believe, right, struggled with self-centeredness, just shocking, right, and divisiveness, right? Paul exhorts them, he says, look, be of the same mind. Unity starts in the mind. It's how we think, and he basically says, think the same way. Now, he's talking about unity, not uniformity. They're two different ballgames. Uniformity is like soldiers goose-stepping on parade, right? Everybody is doing exactly the same thing, exactly. That's not, un- that's not unity. Uniformity is pressure from without. And a lot of churches think that they have unity when everybody's alike. That's not the case. God made people very different. Unity is internal. It's having a common mission a common attitude, a common mindset. Here's how you get unity. Stop pursuing your own agenda and pursue God's agenda, which is the gospel. It's about lost people. When we're thinking like God thinks, we experience supernatural oneness. When our thoughts are dominated by Scripture and we're following the leading of the Holy Spirit, we become one because we're centered on God's mission We're thinking like God thinks, not our agenda. Number two, he says, maintain the same love. The model for that is Jesus. Have you ever thought that Jesus gave the same sacrificial service for every one of us when he died for us? It says, for God so loved the... It doesn't say, for God so loved me more than you. I didn't read that there, right? But sometimes we treat God as if he belongs to us and not you. That's not how God sees it. God loves everyone. Now, loving everyone the same doesn't mean everybody's got the same friendships. He's talking about a love like Christ that says, I am going to meet your needs sacrificially, regardless of who you are. We're to love others in our church family. How? Like Christ loved us. That's the model. Whenever you see conflict in the church, it's because people are self-centered And they've taken their eyes off Jesus, and they don't have the love of Jesus Christ. And that's what produces the division. So he says, have the same mind, have the same love, 
He says, be united in spirit. It literally means soul brother, soul sister. It means one soul. It's a knitting together of our souls. People that are knit together in harmony, having the same desires, passions, and ambitions. And of course, who is that? What unites us? It's all about Jesus. If our overriding agenda is for Jesus Christ to be glorified, then this personal conflict business, it's not going to control your life. had a conversation with a person recently, and they remembered distinctly how a very close family member hurt them 29 years ago, six months, three days, and four hours. It was just about that precise. And you know something? I know the other party, and they can recite the exact same thing on the other side. Yes. And you know people like that as well. Intent on one purpose. Conflict is the result of opposing purposes that people refuse to resolve. So, if my purpose is to prove that I am right and you are wrong, if that's my purpose, then my rights are more important than our relationship. Then my rights are more important than serving Jesus. Right? Me is more important than us. Maintaining unity around Jesus should be our primary goal. Because unity is more important than my way. Amos 3 says, Can two walk together unless they are agreed? Here's a pretty self-evident truth. If you walk together on the same path with someone, you will wind up at the same destination. Right? As long as our common destination is Jesus, we'll remain unified. The church is called to have the same mind, same love, united in spirit, intent on what purpose. And if you want to know how not to do this, we have lots of biblical examples. Take a look at Abraham's family. Abraham and Sarah had two children. They favored Isaac over Ishmael. Isaac's wife, Rebekah, favored their son, Jacob, and Isaac favored their son, Esau. So Esau swore he would kill Jacob. Warm family Adams, right? Jacob's favorite wife was Rachel. His favorite son was Joseph. This led to jealousy, hatred, fractured relationships, deception, and ultimately, Joseph's brother sold him into slavery and hopefully never saw him again. By God's grace, he reconciled those relationships. Here's why unity is so powerful. Unity is such a powerful testimony to the supernatural grace of God because sin naturally separates us. That's normal. The normal course of all relationships is divorce. Not just marital divorce, just divorce. How many of you have friends in high school that you just haven't kept in touch with? The relationship, you didn't kill it, you just neglected it. I'm not saying it's good or bad, all relationships can't be sustained, but it happens. The normal course of relationships is to separate. That's why unity is such a powerful testimony. Jesus said, you'll know, they'll know you're my disciples if you what? Love each other. Love each other. A biblical example of unity is the early church, and this is a powerful one. Jesus had commanded the early church, wait in Jerusalem till the coming of the Holy Spirit. And Acts 2 records the coming of the Holy Spirit. And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together, underline that word, in one place, and they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. All those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and day by day, continually with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together, get in the picture, with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. This was a church that did life together. They listened to God's word together. They prayed together. They ate together. They hung out together. They worshiped together. They shared resources together. They grew together. It's a model for a healthy church. And it says because they were united, what happened? They experienced joy and people were coming to faith because they couldn't believe the supernatural oneness and the joy that they experienced. It was very attractive. 
So we know why to be unified, because all that Christ has done for us. We know what unity is. Same mind, same love, one spirit, one purpose. So how do you achieve that kind of unity? Glad you asked. Look at verse 3. This is going to be, need a lot of water to swallow. It's imperative because it's truth, God's truth. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Here's the principle. Unity depends on humility. Pride divides us, caring connects us. Unity depends on humility. Pride divides us, but caring connects us. Now this word selfishness, it means rivalry. It means partisanship. It literally translates one who works for pay. Now here's the word picture. It refers to a self-seeking person who is pursuing political office by unfair means in order to accomplish personal power and prestige. Does this sound familiar in our culture? It is pride that demands its own way. It's pride that puts self in the center. It's pride that puts others down and out. Selfishness always wants to dominate other people. And this is normal behavior for people that don't know Jesus. But it should not be normal behavior for people who do know Jesus. Number two, empty conceit. These are people who demand unmerited admiration and glory. We call them glory hounds. Do you know any glory hounds? They have to have their name on every achievement that's there, you know, etc. You know the favorite accoutrement of a glory hound? Number one, old school is a mirror. New school is a cell phone so they can post selfies. Have you thought about that? That people that incessantly post selfies, it's all about c'est moi, me, right? Remember the movie Shrek? There's a character named Charming. Remember Charming? He's the guy with the mane of long, wavy hair. And he was a narcissist. The guy was addicted to the mirror. He could never get enough of himself. We know people like that. Empty conceit strives to be a celebrity. Empty conceit wants to be famous. Empty conceit wants to be applauded. Empty conceit craves being a social media influencer. See, they want their name to be remembered, not Jesus' name to be remembered. And that affects us because our selfishness is part of our old sin nature. The original source of pride and selfishness was Satan. Remember, Satan wanted to be, he craved to be worshipped as God. He sold that bill of goods to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and they swallowed it hook, line, and sinker. You too will be like God, meaning you can sit on God's throne. You can be worshipped like God. You can be independent from God. Now the reality is only God deserves to sit on his throne. And no one else ever will sit on his throne. He uses the word humility of mind. It means lowly. There's a book, Lowly Worm. can't remember who wrote it, but anyway, we have it. Lowliness of mind. It means modest like modesto, modest, deferential, self-denial as opposed to self-exaltation. Humility is seeing yourself from God's point of view. How does God see you? Not how you see yourself, not how others see you. It's seeing yourself from God's point of view and living accordingly. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's humility. He says, blessed are those that know that apart from God, they are spiritually insolvent, bankrupt, broke. We bring nothing to God to warrant his grace except ourselves. Humility is the only proper response to our sin and God's holiness. 
A humble person doesn't think more highly of themselves of others than others. You know something? A really humble person doesn't think about themselves very much at all. If you think you're humble, you just lost it. <laughs> right? A humble person really doesn't think about themselves much at all. They're thinking about Jesus. They're thinking about others. When I was a kid in Child Evangelism Fellowship, there's this little song, Jesus and others and you, what a wonderful way to spell joy. Jesus, others, you. Where is you? Thoid, at the end of the line, right? You want a good example of someone who really got this? Look at John the Baptist. John the Baptist understood humility of mind. He knew who he was, and he knew who he wasn't, and he knew what God called him to do. First John, or John 2.19. And this, this is the witness of John. He's in the wilderness. He's doing all these miracles, calling people to repentance. And the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny and said, I am not the Christ. Verse 23, he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Verse 30, chapter 3, he must increase, but I must decrease. John's job was what? Point people to Jesus. What's your job and my job? Point people to Jesus. It's not about us. I mean, put yourself in John's shoes. People are repenting, man. They're, I mean, there's power. Wouldn't it have been easy to say, um, well, you know, I could be. You know, let's just check it out and wait a little while. Actually, he's my cousin. He was his cousin. John didn't say that. John said, he must increase, I must decrease. That's humility. It's all about Jesus. When Jesus is our focus, we will see ourselves and others as God sees us. That's humility. He says, regard one another as more important than yourself. It means think about how to honor, uplift, and serve others, putting their needs ahead of your own. You know the best model for this? Ever been invited to somebody's house who's a really gracious host or hostess? They invite you over for dinner or lunch or whatever, and they're really gracious. And their whole job is to what? Make you feel like a guest. Make you feel important. And they've thought about all this stuff. You know, they've got the water and they've got the, you know, if you're staying overnight, they put out the towels and the cups and the, and the soaps. And yeah, they, they think about the details to make you feel comfortable. That's what he's talking about. Think about others. Think about how you can improve their life like a good host or hostess says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests. He assumes you're going to look out for your own personal interests. Duh. But he says, also look out for the interests of others. Now, we are required to keep our own house in order. You know, you have to keep your own house in order. But our attention should go beyond our own interests. We should ask ourselves how we can serve others, not how we can get them to serve us, which is what the normal goal is. We are servants, and a servant's goal is to help somebody else accomplish their goals. That's what servants do. They create value for the benefit of somebody else. They perform work, and that's what Jesus did, and that's what we do. God actually measures greatness by servanthood. Matthew 23, 11. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Now, pride produces selfishness, which separates us and divides us. By the way, anytime you see division... There's a lot of pride running around. Humility produces unity. Humility is supernatural testimony to the presence and power of Jesus Christ in that group. It is so powerful when people see people getting along, sacrificing for the benefit of others, and loving others. It shines the spotlight on Jesus, and selfishness shines the spotlight on me. I was listening to some gospel music this week, and there's an old one by the Oak Ridge Boys, old gospel song that says, nobody wants to play a rhythm guitar behind Jesus. Everybody wants to be the lead singer in the band, right? Well, our Lord Jesus Christ calls us to place other needs, other people's needs in front of our own, and he showed us how to do that when he died in our place. 
And next week, we're going to spend the entire time in the next four or five verses and look at Jesus, our example of humility. If humility is necessary for unity, if unity is necessary for the transmission of the gospel by example, walking worthy of the gospel, living as a citizen of heaven, unity is that trademark, and humility is the means to that end, then who's our model for that? And that's the Lord Jesus Christ, which we're going to talk about next week. Tom can be coming up in a couple minutes. I'll summarize here. Point one, when people see us behave like Jesus, some of them may choose to believe in Jesus. It's much easier to talk than it is to walk. Now, you need to talk. Matthew 28 says, go, tell. But you need to walk to give your talk credibility. Number two. We're not on the playground here, obviously. We are fellow soldiers and teammates who must stand firm for biblical truth and work together for the growth of the gospel. Point three. When we oppose sin, people who love sin will oppose us. This should not surprise us. We will suffer, but God will save us. Number four. Because of all that Jesus has done for us, we are called to live in loving unity with each other, and lastly, unity depends on humility. Pride divides us, but caring always connects us. Was this practical? Did it put a pitchfork in your spinal column a little bit? That means it's the Word of God, the truth of God. And He does it because He loves us, and I transmit it to you because I love you. Now that you know, do Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.